Well, all right. Welcome into the Gritman Show. I'm Gritman, your host, and we've got Lance Burtman, part two. Lance gave us such a great interview, we decided to break it into part one and part two, and part one was awesome. If you haven't checked it out, please do. But I got to tell you, I think this part two is pretty special. But it's kind of like deciding between a good filet and a good ribeye. I'll take both of them. But real quick, before we get to Lance, I've got a couple favors to ask of you. We don't charge for the podcast. It's not hidden behind some paywall or there's no monthly subscription fees. We're trying to spread some grit and grow our audience. So if you like the episode, if you could just share it with someone else that you think may like it as well. And it doesn't have to be awkward. You can tell them about it or you can click on those three dots that are probably in your upper right hand corner wherever you're listening and it'll drop down and it'll say share and you can email it or text it to someone just say hey i listened to this and thought you may like it too so we'd sure appreciate that second support our sponsors they help defray the cost of producing the episodes and this episode sponsor is gordian sons they've got a retail store here in houston over off of washington and wall and it is my favorite place to go in town just a good place to hang out the best outdoor store i've ever been to if there's a better one i haven't found it yeah, Mr. Gordy and his two sons, and they appreciate getting outdoors and creating memories and honoring those traditions that have been passed down to us, and it's just an awesome store. They've got a great staff. They're friendly. They're knowledgeable. They make you feel welcome, and I will throw down a little challenge. If you go there and you don't find something that you want or need, then that's a good sign that you need to get your grit checked. Something may be off. So go check out Gordy and Sons. Um, tell them thank you for sponsoring the Gritman Show. Tell them you heard them. Look around. Find something you want or need. Gordy and Sons, thank you. All right. Well, here's Lance Burtman, part two. Enjoy. He's a lot like Nails. He plays like Nails. He's tough as Nails. He likes to call himself Gritman, whatever that means. Quit with my daddy. Guess I didn't make the time. And it's been a year since I've seen a deer. Small mouth on the line The other day I hooked a monster And as I reeled him in I thought, man, it feels good to be country again Sometime in my work life of history of driving around Houston in traffic I used to listen to John and Lance And you would be on the show sometimes I don't even know what year this is But I remember you telling some story About playing outfield And throwing a ball And it got caught in some plastic bag yeah, so that was the my next. So my freshman year, we had a really good team. We had a couple, like four future major leaguers on that team, and it was junior and senior late. And that was Jose Cruz Jr.'s junior year. Mark Quinn, who played in the big leagues, his senior year. We had a, a senior shortstop, a senior second baseman, a junior first baseman. So like we were loaded with older players. Well, the next year, my sophomore year, it was a lot of younger guys. Like that was Bubba Crosby's freshman year. You know, Will Ford came in that year. You know, I was just a sophomore. So we we were kind of in that like we had a good year the year before and then we were kind of we were still good but we weren't old and so you know sometimes you make bad mistakes and it's particularly in conference play and we got swept at Texas four games and we're in the process of getting swept by TCU so you know to lose a conference game is a big deal but imagine losing eight straight conference games and there's two funny stories this one and then what happened afterwards but uh, so with that that last game it's a tight tight ball game I'm playing left field the wind is blowing we're in Fort Worth and the wind is blowing like 40 miles an hour from right field across my face into the left field corner and I'm playing left 
So tie game, they pinch hit this big left-handed hitter. He hits a, a towering fly ball that I thought was going to be in left center. So I like open up towards left center, and then the wind caught it, and the lefty spin kind of blew it back over my head. So I had to run uh, completely around. You know, we call it a Magellan route. You know, like I ran around the world, and then I got back on it. And I thought, well, I've got a chance to catch this. So I'm running hard, but it seemed like the harder I ran, the, the harder the wind was pushing it, and I never quite caught up to it. So I, I dived for it at the last second, and it lands about two feet fair. And the ball goes into the left field corner. And I go into the left field corner sliding, you know, after having dove for this ball. And so when I when I did that, I got my foot somehow hung up under the chain link. Because I'd hit the fence pretty hard. Like, I, you know, I was going full speed. And my, my foot got hung up in the fence and I'm on my hands and knees. And I'm trying to find the ball. Because one of the things my dad used to tell me when I was a kid is, he goes, I don't care if you have a bone sticking out of your leg. Like, get the ball and get it to the cutoff, man. That, right. Like, that's your job. Then you worry about yourself. So I'm frantically trying to find this ball, but there's all kind of debris in the corner because the wind had blown like a Big Mac container and a styrofoam cup and napkins. And so I can't find the ball. Meanwhile, this guy's lumbering around second base. Joe Cathy, my shortstop, is screaming for the ball, like, throw me the ball. And I'm like, I can't find it. So finally, I look down, and sure enough, there it is. It's sitting on top of a plastic grocery bag. And the ball's white, the bag's white. That's why I had a hard time seeing it. So I was like, I got it. So I pick it up, and when I go to throw it, I, I had grabbed part of the bag with the baseball. So now I got a streamer that's kind of blowing in front of my face, and I realized I can't throw this together. So I'm like shaking the ball, trying to get the bag loose from it, and the bag comes loose, and I kid you not, I'm still on, on my knees. I go to throw it to Joe, and the bag caught the wind, and it blew around my head and somehow ended up right in front of me, and when I let the ball go, it goes right into the bag and literally goes 10 feet. I mean, the guy gets an inside-the-park home run, which ended up being the winning run, complete circus i'm still hung up in the fence and i you know i think i might have a broken leg and i'm i'm trying to extract myself from it the the shame of this ridiculous play is all over me and all of a sudden i look up and here comes coach graham and he's sprinting out of the dugout coming down the line and i think ridiculously now looking back that he was coming to check on me i thought well he saw me you know collide with this fence and so he's worried that i'm hurt so i try to wave him off like oh i'm good you know i'm gonna stay in the game and he goes from about 30 feet away he said i'm not out here to check on you you're the worst outfielder i've seen in my entire life and turns around and runs back to the dugout and that was it like and we ended up losing the game we ended up losing the you know we got swept so the second part of that, that's a, that's a crazy story. Every word of it's true. The second part of that is we show up for practice the next Tuesday because we had Monday off, and there's a note on the locker room door. It said team meeting in the basketball meeting room, which was like the one place that was big enough to accommodate the whole team. So we go in there and we sit down. Coach uh, Prather, who John Prather was our assistant coach, he walks in and he's got a stack of paper and a box of number two pencils. So he hands a piece of paper out to every player on the team, and he hands a pencil out. And so about that time, Coach Graham walks in very calmly, and he said, we're going to write a one-page essay, and the title of the essay is, Why We're the Worst Team in America. So we, had, we spent the first part of practice writing a one-page essay on why we're the worst team in America. And he, was, he just sat there and let us write, you know, for 30 minutes, and we all had to write it, turn it in, and... One guy had the temerity to put on there, we, we received too much negative coaching, Ooh. and that's why we're the worst team in America. And we didn't sign him, fortunately, because this guy would have been out of the program. But I don't know if this is true, but somebody told me that Coach Graham hired a handwriting expert to try to figure out who it was that had written that. <laughs> I believe and, and And to try to get to the bottom of it. Fortunately, he never found out. I know who it was, but I don't think I'll reveal it even now. <laughs> that's good. 
All right, I said no, no more Coach Graham stories, but I just thought of the one you told me before we got going about Memorial Park mm-hmm. and, and running. So that was a pretty good one. Why don't you share that one? Yeah, so that's the the famous blue dart story. This is also kind of preceding, I guess, my junior year because we it was my junior year. So we had had success my freshman year. We beat LSU twice in their regional loss to the uh, Fullerton um, in the regional final to go to Omaha. They ended up winning the national championship. The next year, even though we had that little blip in the middle of the conference season, we made the conference tournament and won the conference tournament so we won the last southwest conference championship that they ever had and we also made it that year to the regional final and lost to wichita state in wichita and so coming into my junior year there was high expectations like we were on the cusp of breaking through and going to omaha and so coach graham wanted to do something i think that was going to kind of establish the grittiness since we're on the grit man podcast mm-hmm. of the particular squad and so he devised this conditioning test and it was that we had to run around memorial park in 21 minutes or less. So Memorial Park is about three miles around, and so you're looking at averaging about seven minutes a mile or less. And he told us before we left that this is what we're going to have to do when we came back from the summer. So I'd been in the Cape, and I'd played Cape Cod that summer and just jacked around, didn't run a step, you know, was in terrible shape, I thought. And I was like, you know what? i got to do this conditioning test, but i got to plant. So he had threatened to make us run it every other day until we either were in shape to make it or, you know. So so my plan was I was going to run the first time and just kind of jack around I knew I wasn't going to make it and then the second time I knew my roommates had been running and training for it so I knew they were going to make it and I was going to get them to the second time when I had to run it I was going to run around the corner where coach Graham couldn't see me I was going to get them to pick me up in a pickup truck and drive me around the perimeter of the park and then drop me off you know, and I was going to kind of wait and maybe put some water on myself like I was sweating and then run in and that's how I was going to make the 21 minutes or less but uh, so the day of the the day of the race, so to speak, we he, of course it was like seven a.m. Be on this, be right here. We're going to start. And so I woke up at about probably six thirty, and it, it, it was a good twenty minute drive to Memorial Park from our apartment. I wolfed down a bowl of Rice Krispies, jumped in my truck, and took off. And I pulled up right as the thing was starting. So I was almost late. So I had to illegally park my truck, jump out, throw the keys in the bed. And then I, you know, I'm, I'm now I'm jacking around with the team. Like I'm, so I dressed in a a Royal blue shirt, Royal blue shorts, Royal blue bandana and shoes with no socks. And and I told all the guys like blue darts here, I'm winning this thing, called myself the blue dart. And so it was like, you boys, you know, I hope you guys have been training because I'm fixing to blow you out of the water and just mess around. Coach Graham, of course, is not happy. He's like, Bergman, get on the line you know so i get on the line he sends us off and i took off i mean i'm talking about almost as fast as i could run and i started calling back over my shoulder how i'll see you boys at the finish line that kind of thing so knowing that i was just going to run a little bit and shut it down and you know that was my plan well as i was running i thought you know i don't feel too bad let me see how long i can keep this pace going and before you know it i looked down and i'd run a mile and i looked at my watch and i'd run the first mile and i kid you not it was sub six it was like 550 something and i thought holy smokes like I, i'm not breathing that hard my legs feel pretty good let me see if i can keep going so at about the two mile mark I realized, hey, I, I can make this thing. Like I, I'm, I'm two miles into this thing, and I've still got ten minutes to run this last mile, and I'll make it. And on top of that, like I'm gonna win this thing because I look back, and the next closest guy was Mario Ramos, who ended up pitching the big leagues, mm-hmm. and he was three, four, five hundred yards behind me. And so I'm like, I'm winning it. But now the gorillas jumped on my back, and now <laughs> like all of the non-conditioning has poured itself. All I mean, I'm in misery, but. 
grit, you know, yeah. I'm winning this thing. And I just kind of got that mode where I'm not going to let this guy catch me and beat me. He ended up catching me, but about 50 yards to go. So we finished together. So we ended up like winning the thing. I, th I guess I tied. I was a first position player across the line. And as soon as I crossed the line, Coach Graham starts screaming at me about cheating and cutting across the golf course. And, you know, I can't believe you cheat me like that. Well, I took about three steps, hit all fours, and I mean puked Rice Krispies all over the <laughs> Memorial Park track, right at his feet. And he kind of takes a big step back and he's like, well, I guess you didn't cheat. So I laid in the fetal position on the Memorial Park track for about 45 minutes while everybody else finished and finally crawled back to my truck, got in, you know, and spent the rest of the day recovering. But the next day at practice, Coach Graham, in our pregame meeting or pre-practice meeting, he said, that's the kind of heart we need. Berkman, you know, he's won, he won that thing. What leadership. And I thought, little does he know that I planned on cheating him. Right. And it was only by happenstance that I decided to, you know, to try to really run the thing so oh that's awesome let's talk nicknames so blue dart i get you created blue dart for right? myself yeah, yes that's nice yeah um, where did uh so we have big puma yeah was created that one for myself also okay um, what and, was big puma so you referenced the john and lance show we were i was on there one morning and they were talking about the dearth of good nicknames in the major leagues yeah. you know back in the day you had you know smoky joe wood and catfish hunter and you know did you know different names right. that that sort of evoked these different personalities and how there weren't many. And so they asked me, do you have a nickname? And I said, well, no, not really. I mean, not one that that, that I care for. And he, they said, well, if you were going to give yourself a nickname, what would it be? And I said, oh, probably Big Puma. And they said, really? Why? And I said, well, because I'm sleek and fast and powerful and kind of secretive, you know, like the whole deal. Totally tongue-in-cheek, joking around. So they loved it. And they just started calling me the Big Puma on the radio. And next thing you know, we've got Big Puma signs and people showing up at the yeah. ballpark and Puma suits and so that's really how it started and I have to give John and Lance all the credit for propagating that nickname yeah well what about Fat Elvis? Where did that come from? So my, my that was uh, the Keith Keith Olbermann who used to have a show had me on mm -hmm. when I was a young player and he asked me kind of the same thing and I said well you know I don't, I've never really had a nickname but uh, my mom said you know she thought I looked like Elvis when I was younger and he said oh well the fat one or the skinny one and I said well probably the fat one I mean you know I'm not a I'm not a skinny guy and so <laughs> he started calling me Fat Elvis and that's yeah. kind of how that took off also but you know again retrospectively i'm like yeah no nobody really likes to be called fat i'd prefer maybe the husky elvis or the you know maybe a thicker elvis but thicker elvis. fat yeah. nobody really wants to be fat so so during the college world series this year auburn had a player it was their first baseman his name was sonny something but he was fat yeah i don't know if you if you watch sonny d sonny d yeah. yeah i like the guy oh, he, and he could awesome. just straight he can hit. Break. Yeah. yeah and so i was having fun on our instagram page and it dawned on me that the fat guy that can just rake is a dying breed. Like, mm -hmm. like growing up, I remember you had the Tony Gwens and the Andres Galarraga. Yeah. I mean, John Crux. Cecil Fielder. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think – so there is one guy in the modern – he plays for the Mets. Something – his last name starts with a V. He looks to be pretty husky. Mm -hmm. Vogel something. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if you're familiar. But, but anyway, so I posted on Instagram. I said, who makes your all-fat team? And, the, and one of the guys sent back and said, Bertman. And I was like – I don't think Bertman's fat. Yeah. <laughs> so are you fat? No, well, I have a fat face. Okay. So, like, I, I, I can't tell you how many times uh, they say the, the camera adds, you know, 100 pounds or whatever. I had three cameras on me, that kind of deal. But the I, I can't tell you how many times I would meet somebody in person and they'd be like, well, you're not fat. And I'm like, 
No, I mean, I, you know, but on TV, <laughs> Thank you. yeah, I appreciate that. I guess on TV, because I do have a rounder face and, you know, like I'm, I've never, it, it's funny because you end up, you do things um, like I, I you, you know me, like I like to have fun and I like to poke fun at myself. And um, as a consequence, sometimes you don't get as much credit for like working hard or having grit or whatever, because you just, you know, like that's not my, you know, some guys they like to videotape their workouts and you know i can think of a couple of teammates in particular they're like oh look how hard this guy's working you know and the reality is you don't get to play in the big leagues unless you work hard i mean and even the guys that that look like they don't necessarily that and i i take that back there may be two or three guys that i ever played with that were just so talented that they they didn't really have to but i, I think in today's game that the reason it's become a dying breed is cuz you can't do that anymore i mean everybody's committed to being in as good a shape as they can possibly be in and the diet becomes important. I mean, when, when I was first coming to the big leagues, we, you know, all they would feed us after the game was fried food, like chicken fried steak, chicken fingers, you know, it was pizza. There was, there was no consideration as to what the diet would do. And, um, so I think you're, you're seeing sort of the evolution of that. And that's why the, the quote unquote fat player doesn't exist much anymore is because guys are more cognizant of what they need to look like. Now, what the, how, how much that actually helps in terms of your physical performance? I'm not sure because right. you know the greatest player that ever played, Babe Ruth. We think he was, was fat. Yeah, yeah, I mean he was hefty. John, John Goodman was yeah. fat at least. <laughs> so you know that those are the kind of things where you know baseball is a skill driven sport, and undoubtedly there's a there's a uh, a minimum standard of of conditioning that has to happen for you to get the most out of your ability. But some of these guys take it to the extreme. I mean, you certainly don't have to be uh, a John Atlas to, to play baseball. In fact, a lot of the guys that look great in a uniform are not necessarily the best players. So uh, I always have a heart for the guys like you're talking about, like a Sonny D, who I suspect if you met him in person wouldn't look nearly as hefty as he does on TV. There's some guys that just, you know, the camera doesn't love them. I know because I'm one of those guys. <laughs> Hey guys, real quick, I'd like to put a good word in for Poncho Outdoors. They make my favorite outdoor shirt, and the owner, Clay, has stepped up to give our guest on the show a free shirt. I can attest that the Big Puma is svelte. Lance is not fat. We fit him into the Pecos Western shirt, the Pearl Snap one, size XL Slim. You can shop the same look at ponchooutdoors.com. Buy a shirt, get a hat for free. Be sure to add the hat to your cart and use code GRITMEN, G-R-I-T-M-E-N, at checkout. Now more Grit Talk with Lance. That was good. You touched on a lot there, and you know, talking about hard work and success not being an accident. I think successful people—it's it's pretty intentional. There's a reason. You know, it, our last guest said that success leaves clues, mm-hmm. and I agree with that. And the other thing you said is about not being a self-promoter. Great men aren't self-promoters. You know, try to let let our work stand for itself. We don't have to go and tell you how good we are. We'll, you know, hopefully you recognize how we act and our. You know, actions. Yeah, and, and that's. Speak. I, I have a hard time with a lot of the cavorting around that goes on in the game today because, mm-hmm. you know, when I was growing up, again, you sound like an old fogey when you say this, but I do think they're, you know, not all of the old ways need to be thrown out. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Like, there's some things about the old way of doing things that may need to be tweaked, but some of the things and the notions that, you know, kind of go back through the generations are true. And my dad, one, one thing he used to tell me was, if you do something good on the field, act like you've done it before. So if you've hit, if you hit a home run, like, is it more you know are you, are you when you jump around and and celebrate and you know all of that 
you act like, well, that's something that that's a big deal. You know, you ought to act like it's not a big deal. Like that's what they pay you to do. So that was my mentality. Like my whole life is if you do something good on the field, act like you've done it before. And, you know, I owe a lot of that to my dad and, you know, just some of the things that you're talking about. And I've heard you talk about on this podcast is absolutely true. Um, and, and especially in the baseball context, I think there's a, um, you know, people, have become so we as a species are are inherently self-focused and you know some of that is for survival and that kind of thing but the exacerbation of the self-focus in today's culture is is off the chart and so you know when i was playing there was at least some consideration of i don't want to show this guy up like i just hit a homer off this Mm -hmm. pitcher and i don't want to do anything that would call attention to his lack of performance out of respect to him as a competitor and so you know that's kind of gone the way of the dodo because it's all about well, how can I, you know, I deserve to have fun and how can you take any of this away from me? And all oh, you shouldn't be too hard on these guys. They're just having fun. But what, where is the consideration for your competition? Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that makes sports great is the mutual respect that happens between competitors. And that was, you know, one of the great rivalries that we had with my time with the Astros was with the Cardinals. And it was just good, clean baseball. And it was mutual respect on both sides. And that was something that really enhanced that rivalry as opposed to, you know, like, the dancing around and the things that you see nowadays so yeah I, I assume you're alluding to the the bat flips and the of course yeah you get, you get on second base and beat your chest yeah. and point to the dugout or do something mm-hmm. yeah. you, you didn't have any of those did you no because back then you know they would hit you like right. if you if the, the game was self-policing mm-hmm. uh but as soon as they took that out of the game then that's when you started to see some of these and and look guys have bat flipped all the way back to the beginning of baseball maybe but, maybe a walk-off not in the third inning right but they paid for it like if you <laughs> if you were perceived to have disrespected the opposition you were going to get hit period yeah. end of discussion mm-hmm. and guys knew that and you know it was like that that kind of helped keep people in line so to speak and and how has that changed? Like, I don't watch a ton of pro ball, but is it the fines they've implemented, or, or what is yeah, it? Yeah, they just, you know, the automatic ejections and, yep. you know, those ki- kind of things. And, it, and, it, and you know, it's it's a real they, – they've the penalty for hitting guys on purpose now or taking a guy out second base or doing anything that's perceived to be unnecessarily violent towards the opposition – has been punished to the level where it doesn't make sense to do it. So, you know, if you're going to lose a Garrett Cole for two starts because he hit somebody because they bat flipped on him, well, he's not going to do that because that ends up hurting the team in the long run. Mm-hmm. So when they started implementing those penalties for guys throwing at guys, and look, I mean, I'm not an advocate for head hunting and there's a right way to do it, mm-hmm. you know, keeping the ball below the waist and all of those kind of things. Um, but guys used to know how to do that. I mean, there was even an etiquette towards, hey, this guy bat flipped next time up he's going to get drilled and I'm not going to do it to hurt him but he's going to he's going to get a piece of pain so mm-hmm. to speak like yeah. he's going to know that right. I'm not happy with with his behavior so um I think taking some of those elements out of the game of baseball has definitely it's made it safer but I'm not sure it made it better yeah another thing I see in the modern game is it, it seems like the the strikeout is so prevalent and, and they don't care yeah, that's mind-boggling. And it's mind-boggling not just from a philosophical standpoint. It, it, they used to say as one reason for not hitting ball on the ground is like they would say, where does a pitcher want you to hit the ball? On the ground. So it would behoove you as a hitter to not do what the pitcher wants you to do. So that's why you're trying to hit line drive. Well, 
what's crazy about this modern way of thinking about the strikeout is they're teaching pitchers now that the strikeout like that's all they want the pitchers to do they 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 don't the pitch to contact deal is not as prevalent as it used to be they want the power arms that can pitch at the top of the zone with a spin rate fastball and throw a nasty slider and so they're looking to strike guys out like that's winning baseball now at the major league level they want pitchers that produce strikeouts so as a hitter why is it okay to strike out if that's what they're teaching the pitchers to do? Like, if that's what the pitcher wants you to do, then why is it okay if you're the opposing player to do what they want you to do? That doesn't make sense. So, to me, it would seem like as the evolution of the game has gone towards pitchers striking more guys out, that's when the hitter should be worried more about putting the ball in play. And I think what you end up seeing, despite the current philosophy, the teams that win are the teams that put the most balls in play. And I think you can go back and look at the last, say, five or six World Series participants, and I can guarantee you offensively they're in the top two or three in the league at balls in play. And you know it's a statistic you can look at. So there's a lot of things that are going on right now at the pro level that I don't necessarily understand and I don't think are necessarily good for the game. So did striking out bother you? It, uh, for sure. I yeah. mean, stri- a strikeout to me. Now, uh, on like if you're facing Randy Johnson and this dude makes three pitches you can't hit, I mean, you go back to the dugout and tip your hat. I mean, it's Randy Johnson. But for the most part, a strikeout is 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 the most shameful loss that you can take as a hitter because that means that the guy threw not one, not two, but three pitches by you that you couldn't hit, and that is very irritating. And so I just yeah, I mean I I hated the strikeout with a passion. Yeah, I was the same way. It was the worst thing that could have happened. Yeah. And now it seems rarely see guys with a two strike approach. And I think a two-strike approach, it's kind of like we, you know, there's, there's a lot of, it's, it's almost like we talked about earlier with Christianity, like there's a huge misconception about a two-strike approach. Mm-hmm. And so one thing that Coach Graham used to tell us all the time, which I will remember till I die, is he would tell us with two strikes, you know, to shorten up but don't sacrifice bat speed. Like he didn't want us feeling for the ball. He wanted us to maintain our bat speed, mm-hmm. but there's a way to cut your swing down and still maintain bat speed where you're – I mean, I've hit tons of two-strike homers. Like you're not taking the driven ball out of play with a two-strike approach if you're doing it right. But what you can do is you can shorten up. It's hard for me to even get these guys to choke up. I had choked up virtually my whole career, even with no strikes. But come off the knob a little bit, get a little bit more barrel control, get in your legs a little bit, get your head a little bit closer to the strike zone, and fight. Like you gotta, you gotta really fight for contact with bat speed. And if you'll do that, you know, there, that to me is the the proper way of teaching a two strike approach. So is that what you're teaching? Your hundred percent. Yeah, we we teach these guys to do that. I hate seeing a huge like. I'm going to try to hit this ball 800 feet when I have two strikes. Put the ball in play. You know, Help short the team. Quick. Do something. That's right. Yeah. Put pressure on the defense. Let's talk a little bit about college game. So you played in college, then you had a long pro career, and now you got back being head coach at HBU. What are some of your observations? And, and that's, that's a broad question, so wherever you want to take it. Yeah, I mean, as, if, just to dovetail it into what we've been talking about, the college game is great because it's more like baseball – used to be played 30 or 40 years ago at the big league level where you know the bunt is still an appropriate play fighting for contact the strikeout is still you know kind of anathema like we hate guys to strike 
you know, to strike out. Um, and one of the reasons is because the, you know, the defense in the amateur baseball is not nearly as good as it is at the big league level. So the bunt is actually a really good play because yeah. the ball, you know, if you bunt in the big leagues, you're probably out. If you bunt in college, the ball might end up in the right field corner, you know, and it, and it puts pressure on the defense. It makes them make a play. Um, so, the, what I love about the college game, though, probably above everything else, is it's the highest level you can go where the the everybody's still playing for for the name on the front of the jersey, not the name on the back. I mean, they're you know, most of these guys in college baseball are sold out for the team. I mean, they play for each other, and that's a you know by necessity in many ways in pro ball they don't do that. I mean, and when once you get to professional baseball, there's a business element to it where you can you know you're kind of your own franchise. So you know I'm not I'm not casting an indictment on the big league guys because a lot of times they have to play for you know the the a little bit at least of their individuality but in college I mean these guys are really playing for each other and I love to see that and the games are important you play a lot less games so every game matters and there's you know there's just this camaraderie and a brotherhood in college that doesn't really exist at the other levels yeah I would agree I loved college and unfortunately my college was so good that I compared everything going forward to that and just didn't add up yeah and just was to the minors it was all individual but um so one of the things when you were getting into coaching, um, I don't know if it was a knock on you per se, but it was maybe a knock on former big leaguers that have had success that they won't be able to relate. Like, just just hit the ball, man, mm-hmm. like, just like I did it. And so, and, and maybe there's, I hate these blanket policies and statements because we're all different. But maybe Clyde Drexler didn't have success at U of H, I think, and maybe Tony Gwynn or was it Erstad that tried to mm-hmm. coach a little bit? But yeah. So how would you? I mean. Defend yourself to that accusation. Well, I think I think there is some truth to that accusation. I think first of all, you know, I played with a lot of guys at the big league level. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that less than five percent of them would make good college coaches. Okay, so you uh, think there's some truth? I to do that. think there's some truth to that. Okay. And and one of the things you kind of touched on it's the ability to communicate mm-hmm. what you're feeling to somebody else. Mm-hmm. And you know, a lot of high-level hitters that I've talked to, like one of the most confusing conversations that I've personally ever had about hitting was when I tried to pick Albert Pujols' brain, you know? And like he there's things that he does that he just can't explain. Like it's it is innate ability that just, you know, it happens and you can't necessarily put a finger on it. So I think you have to have first and foremost an ability to communicate sometimes complex feelings and make it simple so that guys can understand it. So if you can't do that, then you're going to struggle relating or, or, you know, to your point, like I can't just tell these guys, Oh, we'll do this. Like I did it. You know, like I remember hit a homer, man. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I remember Bert Hooten was our pitching coach one year and he was, Bert was a good coach, but this time he was jacking around with Lidge cause Lidge was like, you know, Bert, had an unbelievable like power curveball and Lidge was like hey Bert how do you show me how to throw that curveball and Bert you know was playing catch with him he's like you throw it like this and he just would throw one and he's like no 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 like how do you throw it? he's like just like this and he threw him another one you know like mm-hmm. never would tell him here's the grip and this is what you should feel but I mean that's kind of some some pro guys approach is like this is how you do it just watch me and that doesn't work I mean you've got to be able to get in the weeds with these guys and you know kind of understand some of the dysfunctions that happen in the young player's swing and be able to commit communicate a good way to fix it or to get it you know headed in the right direction so that's the first thing the second thing is I think um, 
you know, when you play in the major leagues, you're used to a certain type of lifestyle, like where your needs are met. Like, you know, you come in the clubhouse, you throw your laundry on the floor, somebody picks it up. Like when you go on a road trip, you bring your bag to the field, you never see it again until it shows up in your room. You know, your meals are cooked for you. Like people are always doing for you. Mm-hmm. And to me, great coaches are servants. Like mm-hmm. you have to be willing to serve your team in any capacity, whether that means raking the field or doing the laundry or, you know, whatever that is. And I think a lot of big leaguers have a hard time getting out of that, you know, environment that they've grown up there that that they've been used to and kind of getting down and dirty in the weeds. And, you know, and then the second thing, that kind of goes hand in hand with that is you got to work like this is, you know, to be a successful coach, it's not enough to know the game. Like coaching is a profession in and of itself with nuances and with things that, you know, work and don't work. And you have to put in the time and, and you have to place yourself under the time constraints. Like, you know, right now I could be playing golf or I could be fishing or I could be, you know, I don't have to be working. And so with the money that guys make in the big leagues now, it's like, why would I do that? Like, why would I grind it out to the extent that you have to to be a successful coach when I could be doing these other things. I don't need the money, you know. So I think it's hard to overcome some of that too. So I think it's a combination of those things that where I wouldn't disagree necessarily that I, I would certainly say that not all major league players would make good coaches. Mm-hmm. And just because you played at a high level doesn't mean that you can coach at a high level because it's a separate profession and I'm still learning. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm this was my first year this past year and you don't know what you don't know. And I learned a ton just from going through that and we're making adjustments based on what we learned last year. So I want to, you know, if you're not waking up in the morning thinking, how can I be a better coach? Then you're in the wrong profession. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, one of the things that's tough is that when you've got high achievers that have worked really hard for a long time and they've accomplished their goals, which is what, you know, that's what big leaguers are. And then you're having to kind of start from the bottom of the mountain again. A lot of guys aren't willing to do that. They're not willing to take the same level of care and effort and and all of those kind of things that it takes to be great. So it's a unique situation when you can find, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not saying like, I'm not good or perfect at it for sure and who knows if i'm going to be a good coach or not but i am interested in it and i do view it like this is really a serious second career and i want to be successful and i want to try to apply the things that i learned being a successful player into being a a successful coach that was a good answer you you answered all my follow-ups okay (laughs) well i have a tendency to ramble on so just cut me off i mean oh no it sounds like you got you have a fire in the belly to to keep getting better right and i you know it it, it's it's for a long time after i retired it was tough because you know you know every men need a purpose like you got to have something that gets you out of bed in the morning and as great as it sounds like oh i'm gonna go play golf or i'm gonna go fish or i'm gonna go hunt like you do that for a little bit and it's like okay those things are fun but then they it's there's no joy in that Mm -hmm. over the long haul because you're not investing in anything you're not doing anything i mean you're not productive and so I, I spent a, quite a few years after I retired trying to find, you referenced like, hey, I compare everything to my experience in college and nothing's even come close. Well, mm-hmm. I had the same deal. Like when I'm coming out of big league baseball, mm-hmm. you're like, okay, I wake up in the morning. I don't even know if I've had a good or a bad day. Like at least when I was playing, I knew like, oh, you either had a good day or you had a bad day. And you're mm-hmm. working towards a worthy goal. And there was something that was out there in front of you that was motivating you to, you know, to be a man, like to, 
exercise those God-given manly traits of hard work and purpose and leading other people and encouraging other people, all those things that make us alive as men, you got to have something in your life that's doing that. And it took me a long time to, to find that. And it was a very, a very tough transition. I thought I would do better in retirement than I did, um, but it was tough. And so coaching has really kind of given me a new lease, so to speak, or a new purpose, a new dragon to slay. And it's, I I love it because I can use my experiences, good and bad, personally and professionally to help these kids that are coming the same way that I, that I've walked. Mm -hmm. And so I love the college level primarily because that these kids are at a time in their life. I mean, we spent three quarters of this podcast talking about Coach Graham because he's impacted our life in a tremendous way. And I want to have that same impact on on my players. And so that that gives me goosebumps just thinking about that as, you know, being their coach. You're you're on the front lines of molding men. Right. Like you're in a position probably greater than maybe their dad. Yep. But you're there. I tell all of our recruits when they come in with their family, I'm like, look, you know, you guys don't necessarily even realize it, but you're you're moving into a transition phase. You've grown up in your parents' house, and when you go to college, that's the beginning of your transition into the man that you're going to ultimately be. And so I consider it to be a sacred trust to be standing in that gap, to be the guy that is going to have the biggest influence on your life for those formative years. And so I, my, I feel that way. My assistant coaches feel that way. It really and truly, like, that's why I'm doing this. And it's a, you know, in some ways, if you stop and think about it, it's kind of a, it's a big responsibility. I mean, you're taking these young men and they are going to be molded by you, good or bad, through their time with you. So um, it keeps you humble and it keeps you hungry to improve and to, to get better at your craft for, for their benefit. Well, Lance, it's been a lot of fun. I've, uh, I've wanted to have you on for a while, but... I wanted to figure out how we could talk more about grit and weave that into the conversation versus just your home runs and all-star appearances, which would have been fun to talk about, yeah. too. But I, I think I think we accomplished that. I hope the listeners do, but you were great, and, and thank you for telling well, us your stories. Well, thanks for having me on. I really uh, identify with what you're trying to do because, you you know, you're kind of coaching in the in the broad media, yeah. you know, so using your life experiences and what you've learned about being gritty and determined and those kind of things and how it can help you be a better human being. Uh, and that's what I'm trying to do with these guys. So I appreciate the opportunity to come on and really enjoy what you're doing. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you. All right. All right.